You're listening to a podcast of local news from the County of Suffolk in the United Kingdom. This is brought to you by the St. Edmundsbury News Talk Association, a UK registered charity. To the 1882nd edition of St Edmundsby News Talk for the 9th of June 2022. The editor of this edition is Sue Atchison, the producer is Sue Atchison, and your readers are Harvey Johnson and Chris Payne. We should also mention our processing teams who work hard behind the scenes to copy and dispatch this memory stick to you. We will repeat any telephone numbers that are in this edition at the end of the memory stick. We'll now start with the headlines. Pat honoured with BEM. Cinema's famous face is rewarded for services to the community. Suffolk County Council and MP object to 50 metre pylon plans. Only one GP per 2,000 people in parts of Suffolk study reveals. Show draws huge crowds. A cinema legend celebrating his own jubilee, is among those recognised in the Queen's Birthday Honours. Pat Church, who is synonymous with the Abigail Cinema in Bury St Edmunds, and this year marked his 60th in, 60th in the industry, has been awarded the British Empire Medal for services to the community. He joined the Picture House in Hatter Street, aged 19, as a second projectionist, having started his career as a 12-year-old, working three evenings a week at a cinema in Peterborough, before becoming full-time aged 15, and was instrumental in saving the venue from closure several times. The 75-year-old said, It's completely overwhelming. It still hasn't sunk in. I shall, I shall accept the honour on behalf of all the cinema goers in Bury. Without them, I wouldn't be here. In his nomination, Pat was hailed as an indomitable fighter for preserving through new, for persevering through numerous challenges and changes. The Abigate Cinema has been threatened with closure so many times, he said. I'm on my tenth official ownership since I came to Bury. It did close once for three weeks until we could get new sponsors. It's always been a challenge. During his career, Pat, whose autobiography, The Smallest Show on Earth, was published in 2017, has arranged theatre, opera, ballet and orchestral experiences, as well as dementia-friendly screenings. In lockdown, he set up a befriending telephone service, Chat with Pat, for those isolated or alone, and he rescued and restored a hundred-year-old wall mural at the cinema. Now the venue's heritage and events manager, he has organised a series of talk and tours about the history of the building and set up a memorabilia room full of fascinating items, including messages from pupils at St Louis Catholic Middle School in 2008 when the venue, then named The Hollywood, had to shut. The tours are at 11.30am, 1.30pm and 3.30pm on June the 7th, 12th, 14th 19th and 21st he said i feel very lucky actually because i've been in a career been in a career and job which interests everyone for all different manner of reasons having been here so many years i know everyone personally it's like your friends coming to see you council bosses say they will officially object 
to plans to build a line of 50-metre pylons through the middle of the county. Suffolk County Council has announced its plans to officially object to the East Anglia Green proposals for a 180-kilometre line of 400-kilovolt pylons from Norwich to Tilbury in Essex via a substation in Bramford. The plans have already met with a significant amount of local resistance, with many people calling for cables to be laid at sea instead. More than 14,000 people have also signed a petition opposing the plans. Richard Rout, the Council's Deputy Leader and Cabinet Member for Finance and Environment, has written to Greg Hans, the Minister of State for Business, Energy and Clean Growth. Mr Rout said, The Council absolutely supports ambitions for renewable energy and the Government's commitment to meet the target of net zero by 2050. We recognise the benefits that can come from this project and we continue to work with the Government to develop coordinated offshore transmission. However, the Council objects to the proposal for National Grid East Anglia's Green as it stands. I am determined that Suffolk will not suffer unnecessarily as a consequence. We will continue to protect our communities, residents and natural environment. Suffolk County Council has been lobbying government for 11 years on the issue of better coordination for offshore transmission. We are demanding that a more collaborative solution is found to manage the different network connection requirements coming into Suffolk and East Anglia and that all network options are fully explored. Alongside other regional councils and MPs through our offset group, the Offshore Electricity Grid Task Force, we regularly speak with government ministers and officials to express our concerns about the impact of these projects on Suffolk and East Anglia. Last week, I wrote directly to the Minister to continue to represent Suffolk's communities and residents to re-emphasise the recent points made by Offset. James Cartledge, MP for South Suffolk, has also objected to the plans, saying they short-change the East. Mr Cartledge believes the electricity should instead be carried by undersea cables and pointed out that, on current plans, Scotland and the north of England has ten times more underwater cabling than the East. He said National Grid argue that it is necessary to build brand new pylons across East Anglia, including South Suffolk, because the undersea option is not technically possible. In fact, undersea transmission around the UK is already a reality. It's just that East Anglia is getting a far lesser share of investment. My constituents would surely want to know why so much more funding can be spent protecting hundreds of miles of countryside from pylons in Scotland and the north of England when similar investment off East Anglia would give a similar capacity to onshore pylons. Planners have set aside £1.2 billion for Sealink 1, a proposed undersea electricity cable from Sizewell to Kent, compared to the £4.42 billion for projects off the coast of Scotland and the north of England. This all ultimately comes from electricity consumers' energy bills. Mr Cartledge added, We've got confirmation that all this offshore transmission funding comes from the same pot, bill payers. Surely bill payers in East Anglia are as entitled to see offshore cabling prioritised as those in other parts of the country. A National Grid spokeswoman said, The electricity transmission network needs a number of major reinforcements, 
to meet the government's net-zero ambitions to connect large volumes of wind and nuclear generation. We are developing future network designs that coordinate new schemes with the existing system across the whole network, taking into account both cost and environmental impacts. Our overall network proposals in East Anglia region have been developed consistently with those for the rest of the network. According to a study from the Nuffield Trust think tank, GPs from NHS Ipswich and East Suffolk Clinic and Commissioning Group, that's the CCG, care for 2,030 patients each, in comparison to GPs from NHS West Suffolk CCG, who are each responsible for 1,593. At the highest end of the scale in some parts of the country, one GP can care for up to 2,500 patients. GPs from NHS Ipswich and East Suffolk CCG care for an average of 2,030 patients each, which equates to 49.3 GPs for every 100,000 people. Other parts of the country have even fewer doctors. In Portsmouth, there are 39.5 GPs caring for every 100,000 people in the region. Senior fellow at the Nuffield Trust, Billy Palmer, said, These disparities mean people in some areas are less able to access their family doctor than people elsewhere. In an NHS founded on the principle of equal treatment, such stark differences represent a a serious failing. GPs from NHS West Suffolk CCG are responsible for 1,593 patients each, which equates to 62.8 GPs for every 100,000 people. The highest number of GPs in the country is in the Wirral, where there are 80.7 GPs caring for every 100,000 people in the region. A spokesman for NHS Ipswich and East Suffolk and NH West Suffolk Clinical Commissioning Group said, We know how hard all the staff at GP practices are working for their patients during this incredibly busy time, and we thank them for all they are doing. There is a wide team of healthcare professionals working at many surgeries, Not only GPs, but also physiotherapists, pharmacists, nurses and physician associates, enabling people to access the most appropriate care for their needs. Our GP practices are an important part of the community and deliver high quality services to patients. We will continue to support them in looking after people's health and well-being. Thousands flocked to the Suffolk show to celebrate the county after two years of cancellations. Created by the Suffolk Agricultural Association, this pop-up event at Trinity Park in Ipswich (coughs) showcases the area's rich history of agriculture, farming and food and drink production. Despite the occasional drizzle, the show was a hit with crowds who were wowed by show jumping, flower shows and sheep judging, among other events. A firm favourite with the families was the mascot derby, which saw mascots from several organisations, including Ipswich Town Football Club and Suffolk Accident and Rescue Service, race around the President's Ring. Others watched horses have their shoes changed in the farrier competition, while some opted to grab a bite to eat at Green King Street Eats, an avenue lined with food stalls. A touching tribute was read to the former President of the Suffolk Show, John Peyton Phillips, 
before longer service awards were handed out to agricultural workers who had been in their roles for more than 30 years. David Barker, MBE, the current president, who presented the awards to the winners, said of the day, I think it's absolutely the most lovely thing I do as president. These guys are loyal, hard-working, and it's lovely for them to come here and be recognised with their families all round. Too often in life, people are switching jobs, but these guys and ladies have dedicated so much of their lives to just one, he added. In the Flower and Garden Show tent, Mike Clare of Potash Nursery in Bacton was awarded gold for his iconic display of fuchsias that previously bagged him accolades at the Chelsea Flower Show. Of the event, Mr Clare said, It has been really good to be back here. People are still really interested in gardening and all things to do with it. It's great. Everyone is walking around with smiles on their faces. Day two of the event finished with a special celebration for the Queen's Platinum Jubilee. This included a huge parade and pageant in the Grand Ring and finished with a rendition of the National Anthem. Another show which drew large crowds was Woolpit Steam. Thousands of people were transported to the bygone age of steam as a popular rally returned after two years. Crowds descended on Woolpit Steam at Warren Farm in Weatherden last weekend to soak up the sights and sounds of a lost era of agriculture. Between 4,500 to 5,000 people marvelled at a variety of displays, including vintage tractors, steam engines, cars, motorcycles and military vehicles. The rally, which has been going for more than 30 years, supports charities and community groups, with £17,200 donated from the 2019 event. Gerald Seeley, who runs the show with his brother David, said it was an absolute success. People were glad to be out again and it was a very good crowd. One of the highlights was a fantastic display of veteran tractors, including some from the First World War, with trailed implements. That was quite a spectacle, they said. They hadn't seen a display like that in many years, said Mr Seeley. They also had 11 steam engines of various types driving an array of mills, pumps, dynamos and, others machine and other machinery. It also featured the Bamford line shifting display, which one shafting display that should be, sorry, where one engine powered multiple machines for preparing feed for livestock. A Second World War era Caterpillar D7 bulldozer demonstrated its power and performance levelling soil. Another highlight was the steam slow race, where the driver who reached the other side of the ring last triumphed. The winner was Mr Webb with his foster. Vintage cars, motorcycles, commercial and military vehicles were also represented. Meanwhile, the rally welcomed the return of the Dorman's electric yachts. Among the other entertainment was Dodgem's side stalls and Punch and Judy. It has not yet been decided which charities will benefit from the event. Mr Seeley added, this event is like a family. Everyone knows each other. We do it all for charity. So everyone comes to sport and do their bit. I was at that uh, show, at the, the Woolpit Steam oh. show. And you know what the highlight was for me? Tell me. It was seeing my eight-year-old grandson, a member of Thurston Scouts, selling people programmes on the gates. Oh, well done. Yes, great. I'm great. sure. I'm sure there are other highlights from yes, the people. Yes, but that's a wonderful, but for me, that was, a wonderful that was the time. and a wonderful contribution. Anyway, we go on. 
A Bury St Edmunds Army officer has said taking part in the Queen's Platinum Jubilee birthday parade will be the highlight of his career. Captain Ben Mason, Director of Music, Band of the Grenadier Guards, was one of 250 musicians from the six bands on Horse Guards Parade London on June the 2nd. Also on parade were more than 1,400 infantry soldiers along with 250 horses from the Household Division. Before joining the Army as a junior musician, Captain Mason attended St James Middle School and St Benedict's Upper School, both in Bury St Edmunds. He was in the local Army Cadet Detachment and performed with various West Suffolk youth music groups. In the event, he was situated towards the rear of the band and as the conductor on parade was the only person not carrying an instrument. Speaking before the parade, Captain Mason who was taking part in his 15th Trooping the Collar, said, To be part of the Trooping the Collar parade for the Platinum Jubilee is the highlight of my career and an incredibly special personal moment for me in the service of Her Majesty. What an amazing example Her Majesty the Queen is to us all. Absolutely. Dedication ceremony for Memorial Bench. A Royal British Legion branch has dedicated a memorial bench in the grounds of the Church of St John the Baptist in Stanton. This will honour the memory of any Stanton district branch member who subsequently passes away. The names of the deceased will be included on a brass plate fixed to the back of the bench. The dedication service held on May the 28th was ministered by the Reverend Cathy Bladen. Two Suffolk foals have been born at Jimmy's Farm and Wildlife Park near Ipswich, providing a huge boost for the conservation of the endangered breed. A filly foal, born to Spearman Annie on May the 14th, has been named Spearman Bellatrix and is likely to be the only purebred foal sired by the stallion, saving his rare bloodline. The Suffolk Punch breed is categorised as a priority on the Rare Breed Survival Trust's annual watch list, and the births of just 16 purebred Suffolk filly foals were registered in 2021. The safe arrival of a filly foal is cause for particular celebration because when a breed's population is so low, the birth of new females is vitally important. There was further cause for celebration with the birth of a purebred Suffolk colt foal the previous week to another Suffolk mare, Spearman Annabelle. The foals were born as a result of a collaboration that was instigated and supported by the Suffolk Horse Society, an organisation that works to improve the breed's prospects for the future. Jimmy Doherty, the owner of Jimmy's Farm and Wildlife Park, a member of the Suffolk Horse Society and Vice President of the Rare Breed Survival Trust, said, I'm delighted at the arrival of both foals. When the Suffolk Horse Society asked if we would be able to contribute to this breeding project by hosting the two mares, we were over the moon and jumped at the chance. We are elated that these two beautiful foals, the result of two successful pregnancies, the Suffolk Horse is an irreplaceable feature of our local heritage here in Suffolk, and these foals will help strengthen the population. Mark Donsworth, the chairman of the Suffolk Horse Society, said... The Suffolk horse breed, as we know it today, can be traced back to 1768 and there were many thousands of Suffolks throughout East Anglia before the First World War. But today the breed is the rarest of the UK's purebred heavy horses and urgent action is necessary to secure its future. 
Every purebred Suffolk foal bears is incredibly precious, but as a filly foal continuing a very rare bloodline, Spearman Bellatrix gives cause for extra celebration. Tracy Pettit from the Suffolk Punch Trust and Colony Stud led the team working around the clock to check on the horses in the lead-up to their births. A cinema has been celebrating its one-year anniversary of reopening with a 1930s-inspired extravaganza. The Regal in Stowmarket, which originally opened in 1936, honoured its origins on Saturday with 5p admission tickets, a classic car and vintage fancy dress. After a £3.7 million refurbishment last year, the cinema has been upgraded with the introduction of two more screens and a cafe bar. Although the revamp exceeded initial deadlines with an additional nine months of development, staff members said it was well worth the wait. David Marsh, theatre and events manager, said, We've done it. We've done it. We've done a year since the refurb, and the event was to thank the people who came and supported us during a difficult year for everyone. People loved coming out to see the car. It was absolutely lovely and great to do something for the community. A 5p cinema ticket was roughly the average admission price when the Regal opened and David was pleased to be able to offer tickets at a much lower price for the event. He said it provided an opportunity to come to the cinema for people who can't always afford to. We do have pocket money movies in which people can save money on a cinema trip, but even that can be a stretch for our customers at the, at the moment. We've had some really nice messages since to say how the event made it possible for families to visit us again. The celebration was supported by Masquerade Costume Ha, which provided the 1930s style wardrobe, and also Simon Cook, who showcased the 1937 Bu Buick limousine. The classic limo was um, originally bought in 1937 by Gainsborough's Rose Brothers in Lincolnshire. They manufactured wrapping machines and were one of the first companies in the world to wrap tobacco. Car owner Simon Cook said, you really don't know who may have been picked up and driven around in this car. That's why I like to keep the interior the same as it was back then. It keeps the history alive. It brought people over to have a chat and take some pictures and that's what it's all about really. It makes people smile or makes their day a bit better, even just for a moment, then I hope that that positive effect ripples out across the town. Café-led Lucy King said, We've had a brilliant year so far, and it was great to do something affordable to celebrate the occasion. To have the car at the event was great, and a real good laugh too. Ferris and Edmund's residents woke to a floral extravaganza on Wednesday, after hundreds of hanging baskets were installed across the town. Nearly 500 baskets, basket trees and planters were put in place for the summer thanks to efforts from Woolpit Nurseries and West Suffolk Council teams which worked closely with Berry and Bloom. This year's hanging baskets, which use peat-free compost, will benefit from harvested rainwater collected from the first of four 10,000 litre water tanks at Green King and used on the weekly watering rota by the council's hanging basket team, led by Jason Baldwin from Green Spaces and Heritage. David Irvine, Berry and Bloom coordinator, said, Berry is well known for its floral beauty, and the hanging baskets and planters around town play a big part in this. 
Watering the baskets is a big job, which uses a lot of water, and using soft rainwater from our first water tank will make a significant difference to plant growth, as well as being a large environmental step forward. This year's colour schemes are red, white and blue for the Jubilee, and yellow and purple to mark Abbey 1000. David added, We continue to be thankful for the support of local businesses and private homeowners in the town's core, who remain dedicated to sponsoring these beautiful hanging baskets, which enhance the town so much, and play a big part in our Anglian Bloom and Berry and Bloom competition entries. Councillors have backed a refusal of plans for more than 1,300 homes north of Bury St Edmunds, which will now go to appeal. St Joseph Homes Limited lodged an application in December 2019 to develop 1,375 homes on land northeast of Berry Road in Great Barton, land allocated for around 1,200 homes. New roundabouts connecting the A143, pedestrian and cycle crossings, open space and local centre are also planned. Negotiations had been going, ongoing over the highway's impacts and mitigation measures, but a report by West Suffolk Council said that the applicant had declined to negotiate further with the local highways authority. The developers lodged an appeal to the planning inspectorate, citing non-determination of the application as the reason. On Wednesday morning, West Suffolk Council's Development Control Committee unanimously agreed with planning officers' reasons for refusal for the 79-hectare scheme, which will be used as part of the council's defence in the appeal. Suffolk Highways and National Highways felt the plans go against national planning policy specifically around unacceptable impact on road safety and severe cumulative impacts on the network. The developers had submitted mitigation measures, but both local and national highways teams said it would not fully address their concerns. Developers said mitigation contributions to be found amounted to around £700,000, but Suffolk County Council Highways said this was nearer £1.3 million. A date for the planning appeal is likely to be set for September. And now to our ever-popular segment of Reader's Letters. <laughs> and the first one is actually a reader's poem, uh, written by Beryl Dykes of Fornham St Martin, and given the heading here, Bring Out the Bunting for Celebrations. And of course, it's a poem about the D D Platinum Jubilee. <laughs> Today we raise a cheer to the Queen on her Jubilee, a great and gracious monarch, a loyal majesty. So bring out the bunting for the celebrations. Light the fireworks, light the beacons, not just here in England, but across the nations. Here's to you, Your Majesty. Greetings from your peoples is the cry across the land from village, town and steeple. You have been our strength and stay over these 70 years. We raise a glass to you, our Queen. Good health, God bless and cheers. Um, my message actually is from Barry Peters, who is the editor of the Berry Free Press. And he says celebrations are just what the country needs. Covid, Partygate, recession, Brexit, Covid again and now monkeypox. The past year or so has been a roller coaster for us all. Children left reeling after being in and out of school, 
adults unsure of what's safe to do, and our senior citizens at major risk of death on a seemingly daily basis. Add some economic issues into the equation, which would make your hair curl in a regular year, and some political storms which seem more and more de rigueur these days, and the years 2020, 2021 and 2022 will live long in the memory for sure. So, this week's celebrations marking the Queen's Platinum and Jubilee should be welcome for everyone. It's a chance to reflect on a life served in the spotlight, with dignity and decorum. A life of privilege, yes, but a life which has shone as a bright beacon in times when we have needed it the most. So, as you sit down to enjoy a slice of Victoria sponge, cucumber sandwiches, or whatever suitable little feast you have lined up, Take a moment to reflect on our Queen in the way she would want. A loving mum, a doting wife, a loyal servant and a magical monarch. Indeed. <coughs> uh, this next letter is written by Sir Tony Robinson. And if you don't know who that is, he's the Alzheimer's Society Ambassador. This year, Dementia Action Week's theme of diagnosis will have struck a chord with many people. Hopefully more people will now recognise the symptoms of dementia and the importance of seeking a timely diagnosis. I want to thank everyone in Suffolk who got involved, whether it was by publicly sharing their own personal experience of a dementia diagnosis, engaging with events, social media activity, or just talking with family and friends. On the first day of Dementia Action Week, Alzheimer's Society recorded a 70% increase in calls to its Dementia Connect support line, compared to the same time frame the previous week. We know diagnosis rates are at a five-year low due to the pandemic, and tens of thousands of people are living with undiagnosed dementia. Across Suffolk, there are more than 13,500 people estimated to be living with dementia. Some people are putting off a diagnosis because they think memory loss is a normal part of ageing. They don't recognise the signs or are just too afraid. A new survey by Alzheimer's Society found in the east of England 17% of people are more likely to visit their GP if they found a lump than if they experienced dementia symptoms. I would encourage anyone who has concerns for themselves or that of a loved one to visit Alzheimer's Society's website, alzheimers.org, UK slash memory loss where they have a new symptoms checklist that can be printed off, filled in and taken with you to help discussion with your GP. A diagnosis can be daunting, but it's better to know and crucial to help people manage symptoms and avoid ending up in a crisis. A diagnosis can allow more time to plan for the future and unlock the door to treatment, care and support. If you've been inspired to support Alzheimer's Society, why not get involved in its forget-me-not appeal this June? For more information and to get your badge, visit alzheimers.org.uk forward slash one word forget-me-not. My next letter <coughs> is from Air Vice Marshal Chris Elliott and he is Chief Executive of the RAF Benevolent Fund and he says the Queen has been our patron since 1952. As we celebrate Her Majesty the Queen's Platinum Jubilee, marking 70 years of service, I would like to thank Her Royal Highness for her continuous support of the RAF Benevolent Fund, being the charity's patron since 1952. 
one memorable event for the fund was in june twenty twelve when her majesty attended the unveiling of the fund's bomber command memorial in green park london the ten-year anniversary of which is on june the twenty sixth the memorial pays tribute to the fifty five thousand five hundred and seventy three airmen who lost their lives serving in bomber command during the second world war and the unveiling was attended by thousands of veterans and relatives her majesty the queen has always been a tireless supporter of the fund's work providing welfare services for the whole RAF family from serving personnel and veterans to their partners and children it's a privilege to celebrate the platinum jubilee with cherished memories of her majesty's commitment not only to the RAF but to all the arm but to all the arm the next letter concerns the Museum of East Anglian Life and is headed by as dismay at the name change. Sir, we write as a group of historians and researchers with personal and research interests in East Anglia to express dismay at the renaming of the Museum of East Anglian Life as a food museum, with the obvious change in ethos this represents. Founded in Stowe Market to preserve the heritage of East Anglia, the museum was never a simple exercise in nostalgia. Our late colleague Norman Scarf, an East Anglian whose work straddled a literary and historical and an exponent of local history of national significance, recognised this, and we are certain he and his joint founders will be wholeheartedly opposed to the rebranding and refocusing of the only institution dedicated in its charitable objects to all the varied aspects of East Anglian life. The new strategy focusing on food, and justified by the banal observation that everyone eats, is a poor successor to the aims of the founders. It explicitly rejects any attempt to encompass the richness of the East Anglian experience and diminishes an important regional identity in favour of a generic national theme so broad in its potential interpretation as to be effectively without meaning. It centres on one aspect of the region, arguably the least remarkable, to the exclusion of those with a demonstrable East Anglian flavour, such as the textile industry, non-conformity and dissent, vernacular architecture and the region's 20th century experience in wartime and the Cold War. This makes us deeply concerned about the care of existing artefacts and future acquisitions and the viability of the museum as a destination for items of value to East Anglian studies. This latter point must be explored in full, as, if the museum is no longer an appropriate custodian, it is vital that an alternative be identified to ensure researchers and the public have adequate access to such objects. The director has described the radical changes already in place as a next step rather than a destination, suggesting a piecemeal and poorly planned transition to an uncertain new identity. Given the lack of any public detail about the funding strategy for the planned transformation, we are concerned about what this portends for the long-term sustainability of the museum. The changes also risk isolating the museum from the East Anglian public, who are so vital to its continuing existence. If you remove a people's connection from their history, it is no longer their history, and they will find other outlets to satisfy their interests and identity. The director and trustees have a duty of care to maintain that relationship 
by blending accessible heritage with a critical examination of the past. The undeniable local controversy suggests that key public link has already been put at risk. We implore the director and trustees to halt their ill-conceived food strategy, which risks inflicting irrevocable damage on a valuable East Anglian cultural asset and to carry out a robust and effective consultation process with experts and the public on the direction of the museum. And quite a number of signatories to that letter. Uh, Professor David McCulloch, Dr J.M. Cross, Professor Richard Wilson, Professor Mark Bailey, Dr Harvey Osborne, Joe Carruthers, Stephanie Bunn, Dr Francis Young, Kay Lacey, Charlie Haylock, Neil Lanham and Matthew Atwood. So quite a lot of people behind that mm, letter. Very much so. Now, my letter is from Juliet Bouveret, OBE, and she's Chief Executive of the Stroke Association, and hers is a thank you letter too. And she says, volunteers make a big difference. I'm delighted to be able to say a huge thank you to the hundreds of wonderful Stroke Association volunteers this Thank You Day 2022. The annual Thank You Day, which takes place, or took place rather, on Sunday, June the 5th, is extra special this year, as it coincided with the Queen's Platinum Jubilee weekend, where the nation will stop to celebrate 70 years of service by Her Majesty the Queen. To all our volunteers, you make a huge difference to thousands of stroke survivors and their families by sharing your stories, providing information and support through services and stroke groups. <coughs> promoting stroke in local communities promote yes promoting promoting stroke in local communities fundraising and campaigning for change i'm also delighted to pass on the best wishes of the duke of kent who is also president of the stroke association on this thank you day it's an honor to be able to say a huge thank you to every one of the fantastic volunteers at the stroke association this special weekend, as we celebrated the Platinum Jubilee, it is fitting to also take time to recognise the service of the amazing volunteers who are supporting stroke survivors and their families every day as they rebuild their lives after stroke. We are inspired by your dedication, commitment and care towards others, particularly those volunteers who have been so badly affected by stroke themselves. My best wishes and thanks to you all. So it's a huge thank you from me and everyone at the Stroke Association. Thank you for giving hope to thousands of stroke survivors and their carers and supporting them with their recoveries. You're amazing. And we're going to include with the letters section a, a few short comments on uh, the retirement of Leslie Dolphin. The heading says, The news a popular BBC Radio Suffolk presenter has announced she is retiring later this year after almost 40 years working in local radio, had readers typing in. Leslie Dolphin, who has been presenting the afternoon show since 2008, said after spending many years saying how lovely Suffolk is, she now wants to spend some time getting out to enjoy it for herself. And three people have commented directly on that. Del Hill said, Leslie Dolphin is the only person worth listening to on Suffolk Radio. Happy retirement, Leslie, you deserve it. David Dawson said, he thought he would try to sway her to stay. He said, such a shame. Great show, lovely lady, thousands will miss you, don't go. <laughs> Whereas Andrew Peachy commented, I will miss her dearly, a wonderful, irrepressible personality 
who delivers such an incredible range of local stories and was an amazing host in having me on a couple of times. <laughs> Wonderful. Now, I still have a letter, actually. I have a couple of letters. And the one is from Graham Day of Stowmarket. And he says the Lakes New Café is a fine addition. Sir, over many years we have enjoyed walking around Needham Lake in all seasons, there being a constantly changing kaleidoscope of colour and activity. I can recall the lake site being used to provide material for the then new A45, now the A14, Gipping Valley Bypass, which was being constructed whilst I was working for Gipping Rural District Council in 1972-73. to On a warm and sunny spring morning, we decided to visit the lake to walk the paths around it. The development of the lake is a superb facility, now much visited, and the experience has now been enhanced by the opening of the Duck and Teapot Café. After the walk, a most welcome café and a comprehensive and affordable menu selection to tempt one. On this occasion, it was the opening day, and the café was very busy. Despite there being some minor difficulties, the staff coped very well in the circumstances, and overall the experience was a very good one. No duck or grouse from us, um, as another visit will probably be made very shortly. Congratulations to Mid-Suffolk Council for the development of what will be a fine facility, which enhances the visitor experience massively. And from Graham Day, don't miss this hidden Suffolk gem. On a Friday afternoon, we took the opportunity to participate in a group visit organised by the East Anglian Practical Classics Car Club to Granary Crafts at Buxall near Stowmarket. Granary Crafts is located on a farm outside the main Buxall village, but as well as crafts, there is an unexpected gem. Within the buildings, a superb museum with several rooms containing a huge selection of items ranging from household items and goods of past years cars and other vehicles, motorcycles and a real treasure trove of local photographs and information. You could spend a really absorbing time on just these displays alone. It's real social history. An absolutely wonderful visit topped off with excellent tea and cakes in the cafe. (laughs) A really hidden Suffolk gem which deserves to be visited and not missed. Another hidden gem is the Hidden Gardens to be on show for Hospice Charity. Barry St Edmund's Hidden Gardens event is back this summer. The popular fundraiser in aid of St Nicholas Hospice Care will give visitors a glimpse of some of the best gardens the town has to offer on Sunday, July the 3rd. Last year, Hidden Gardens of Bury raised about £22,500 for the charity. Tickets can be bought on the day from the marquee on Angel Hill or in advance from the hospice's website. Under a heading, 75% of readers, that is to the East Anglian Times, oppose return of pounds and ounces in shops. A three-month consultation into greater use of imperial measurements has been launched by the government, but a poll of our readers suggests many are against the idea. The Department for Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy, that is BEIS, say they plan to review overbearing EU rules post-Brexit and restore common sense to the statute book. The EU Weights and Measures Directive came into force in 2000, with traders legally required to use metric units for sale by weight or the measure of fresh produce. 
It remains legal to price goods in pounds and ounces, but they have to be displayed alongside the price in grams and kilograms, except in a limited number of cases. The 12-week consultation will look at how to change those stipulations, giving traders more freedom to choose how they price fresh items. Business Minister Paul Scully said, While we think of our fruit and veg by the pound, the legacy of EU rules means we legally have to sell them by the kilo. Our consultation today will help shops to serve customers in the way their customers want. However, in an online poll of nearly 500 people carried out by this newspaper, 75% of respondents were opposed to the plan. And Tory peer and supermarket boss Lord Rose of Mon... Pardon, Lord Rose of Monuden argued that the idea of returning to imperial weights and measures is complete and utter nonsense and would add cost for those making the transition. The ASDA chairman said on Thursday that the change would only please a small minority who hark for the past. What do the East Anglian Daily Times readers make of the government's imperial measurement plan? These comments have been taken from our online poll and edited for clarity and length. Great idea. It's awful having to try to mentally convert foreign measurements, weights, into proper sizing that older people can understand. We will bring back imperial measurements, even though entire generations of people have not been brought up with them. What a good way to distract people from A. Partygate, B. Prices of stuff going up. Bring it back. I've never stopped using them. Imperial measurements have never gone away. Many folks use them in everyday life. Or a mixture. A metre of 2 by 2 wood, for instance. Recipes are often in ounces. A pound of mince or tomatoes. I asked my butcher for a couple of pounds of sausages. Waste measurements include inches, etc. More people, more popular than is realised. An absurd idea. Should children have to learn old measurement systems? Should we have to recalibrate scales in shops? They really are scraping the barrel. A hundredweight of rubbish. And the final comment is, this just proves that this government hasn't got a scooby-doo what's going on in the ordinary lives of the majority of people today with high energy bills and price rises. Now, I wonder what our listeners think. Are you still in pounds and ounces? Well, I do a combination of both, actually. <laughs> OK, now there's time for just one or two feature articles. Uh, the first one's entitled How Street Parties Became a Uniquely British Tradition. Very topical article, I would imagine, at this time of the Platinum Jubilee. A little subheading, never mind if your food's not the greatest, this charming throwback is all about sharing what you have with your community. Union Jack tablecloths will adorn the trestle tables and bunting will flap in the breeze as we tuck into what will be a unique occasion, the like of which we may never see again. Street parties will be taking place across the nation this weekend as we mark the Queen's Platinum Jubilee. Roads will be closed off to cars for a few hours as the magic begins for the first time since the Diamond Jubilee was commemorated a decade ago. Young and old will sit down together to celebrate, a rare thing in itself in an age when anyone over 40 probably can't understand what the average teenager is on about half the time. 
as in platted jubes, char. Mm. How much things have changed since Elizabeth II acceded to the throne in 1952 could be one of the main topics of conversation for those old enough to remember life before the colour TV, mobile phone or internet. Younger revellers may well shake their heads in disbelief when told there was a time when we watched the telly in black and white and there was no Facebook. And it's not just the world around us that has changed in the dizzying swirl of new technology, new opportunities and new threats. We've undergone seismic change too. Many of us spend more time scrolling through our screens and speaking to our neighbours or even our own families these days. Social media has become our social life. Even the Queen and Royal Family are on Twitter. Yet it wasn't always like that. Street parties are more than just a good old-fashioned knees-up. They're a throwback to a time where generations were united in hope, less than a decade before 1926, when our longest reigning monarch was born. Street parties can trace their origins back to 1919, when Peace Day was declared. On July the 19th that year, Communities were encouraged to put on peace teas to celebrate the signing of the Treaty of Versailles, which formalised the end of the war between the Allies and Germany. The First World War, which ended the previous year, had brought hardship and left countless children orphaned. Hundreds of thousands did not come home. It was a time to move on from the horrors of the trenches, time to look ahead to a brighter future after what became naively known as a war to end all wars. Streets were decorated with bunting, while families came together to share food and play games. Happy memories were made in the summer sunshine. Peace Day became a red, white and blueprint for the future national celebrations, and street parties went on to become an enduring and almost uniquely British tradition. King George V's Silver Jubilee was marked in similar vein in 1935, along with the coronation of George VI two years later, after his older brother and first in line to the throne, Edward VIII, was forced to abdicate. Then came another gruelling war, after which generations took to the streets again to celebrate the return of peace. After the Festival of Britain in 1951, parties commemorated red-letter days on the royal calendar, such as the Queen's coronation in 1953, her Silver Jubilee in 1977, her Golden Jubilee in 2002, and her Diamond Jubilee in 2012. The weddings of Prince Charles and Lady Diana Spencer in 1981 and Prince William and Kate Middleton in 2011 saw the trestle tables go up again. Sunday saw the bunting come back with a bang for the Platinum Jubilee, if the number of Union Jacks and decorations you see driving around are anything to go by, the 70th anniversary of the Queen's record reign has rarely captured people's imagination. Killjoys have complained of traffic chaos, with countless thousands of parties expected across the length and breadth of the land during this period. Authorities have fortunately been encouraged to adopt a flexible approach to those who didn't get round to applying for the necessary permit before the deadline, rather than dish out fines for their dessert. But the moans will be drowned out, and rightly so, as thousands take to the streets. And let's face it, we could certainly all do with a doom and gloom-free afternoon for a change right now. 
while war in Ukraine and the cost of living crisis are enough to drive the Dalai Lama to drink, Sunday is going to be about much more than just a booze up to finish the four-day holiday weekend. Back in 1919, people shared food and contributed what they could for peace teas. In those hard times, some would have had very little to bring to the party, just as increasing numbers are struggling today. Sunday's big lunch theme invited us all to do the same and chip in, whether it was helping to make the coronation chicken sandwiches, baking a round of cupcakes or firing up the barbecue and throwing on a few extra bangers for the neighbours. It's all about sharing what you have and being part of the community, even if you're not Jamie Oliver when it comes to knocking up the hors d'oeuvres. No one's going to care if your icing ran or your sausages ended up a little charred. Perhaps that's why street parties have endured down the generations, because they bring us all together to share and delight in the simplest of things, from sandwiches cut into triangles, washed <laughs> down with warm beer or flat lemonade, to party games. So, roll on Sunday when some people will be celebrating again. We had armed only with axes and handsaws, wartime women who saved forestry. It's the 80th anniversary of the Women's Timber Corps. But why were they forgotten for so long? Barbara Eels reports. Today, nothing remains of Culford Camp, and an old, po an old post box near a field entrance on a country road is the only sign it ever existed. And yet, 80 years ago, it was where thousands of women were trained to play a crucial role in the war effort. The camp was England's biggest training centre for the Women's Timber Corps, which kept forestry and all that depended on it going during World War II. But the vital, tough and often dangerous work of the lumberjills, as they were known, appeared for decades to have been wiped from history so completely that one veteran described them as Britain's Forgotten Army. The stories of young women who toiled through freezing cold and sweltering heat, felling trees and with axes and handsaws, hauling timber and working in sawmills seemed lost as surely as Culford Camp, which was demolished in, in the 1950s. But they now have the 21st century champions, including author Joanna Fote and Suffolk expert Nikki Reynolds, who, 80 years ago, after the WTC was founded, are determined their contribution will not be forgotten. The roadside post box that survives in Culford was where recruits, many still in their teens and at first often desperately homesick, would have sent letters back to their loved ones. Though some were already strong and used the outdoor life, others were far from well prepared with townies, sometimes arriving in high heels and hats with veils. Four weeks of training, including rigorous early morning exercise sessions, helped build the muscles they needed to tackle the work. Doing what was thought to be a man's job, these pioneering women brought gender stereotypes crashing down, says Joanna, author of a book about the lumberjills. But at the time, the thought of a woman wearing trousers, let alone striding into a forest and chopping down trees, could still outrage the more conservatively minded. The treatment suffered by early recruits was one of the things that shocked Joanna, whose book Lumberjills, Britain's Forgotten Army, was published in 2019. They were laughed at for their enthusiasm to offer their services, regarded as ornamental rather than useful, 
and many timber merchants did not want women taking over the jobs of skilled men. In fact, they proved that women would carry logs like weightlifters, work in dangerous sawmills, drive huge timber trucks and calculate timber production figures on which the government depended during wartime. With their 80th anniversary, I hope to inspire women of all ages with the strength, courage and determination of the Lumberjills. We are coming to the end of this edition of St Edwardsbury News Talk. If you have any comments about the memory stick or find any difficulty playing it, please use the phone number you've been given or put a note in the pouch when you return the memory stick to us. We'd like to acknowledge our appreciation to the Berry Free Press, East Anglian Daily Times, Haverhill Echo and Newmarket Journal, from whose pages most of our items have been taken. There's only one telephone number I will give you, that's if you want to call the Dementia Connect Sport Line, that's the Dementia Connect Support Line, and that's 0333 That's 0333-150-356. Well, News Talk will be back with you again next week, so until then, from Sue, Chris and Harvey, it's... Goodbye. Goodbye. been listening to a podcast brought to you by the St Edmundsbury News Talk Association. You can view more information about News Talk on our website at www.stedmundsburynewstalk.org.uk. The music in this podcast was provided under Creative Commons license by Scott Holmes. This podcast was created entirely by volunteers in our Bury St Edmunds studio.